Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 10th of February 2020 and this is episode 147. On today's podcast, Charles Fair talks about his research into officer cadet battalions during the Great War. I spoke to Charles from his home in London. Charles, welcome back to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in doing a PhD on officer cadet battalions? Well, this comes from a a number of sources. Thank you, Tom. I think firstly, myself as having been in the officer training corps at university myself and got my TA commission through that route. And prior to that, the cadets at school, I suppose I'm interested to see what the first of all equivalent of my experience I suppose would have been in getting commissioned and in fact this came up in my book Marjorie's War different members of my family got commissioned in very different routes my grandfather got commissioned uh, along with a couple of other of the characters in my book in early 19 early after the war broke out in 1914 in you know, those first few weeks um, so my grandfather got commissioned in September 1914 and having had 47 days as a private in the honorable artillery company he got commissioned without any military experience and very much learnt on the job. And by September 1916, after High Wood, he ended up commanding his battalion. Whereas my great uncle, he went through a school of instruction at Cambridge in November, December 1915. And his brother, my great uncle Reggie, went through number nine officer cadet battalion in the last three, four months of 1916. So those three individuals had very different experiences. And then my grandfather, not having done much in the way of formal training to be an officer, he'd learned on the job, and then having commanded a battalion, he goes in summer of 1918 to be an instructor at number 24 ACB of the tanks down in um, in Winchester. So I can see just my own family experience, there's a huge range of diversity of experience into into getting commissioned. So, and I think one of the things that, that came out when I, I looked into it is that nobody had really explored the subject of commissioning in depth. So Gary Sheffield talks about it in part in his book on leadership in the trenches, as do Charles Messenger. There's a section on, on officers, officer selection and training in A Call to Arms. And Tim Bowman and Mark Connolly talk about it in their book on the British Army in the Great War. But no one has really looked at the officer cadet battalion system as it arose to see whether it was any good. And I think there's an over, been an over-reliance on some pithy quotes by Robert Graves, um, who says that the officer cadet battalion system saved the army from becoming a mere rabble. In 1918. So that quote's been trotted out several times. And another quote by Robert Graves is that we failed about one in six of the cadets. And one of the main modes of selection was assessing how well they were at playing games. If a man played fair but dirty, um, he would get commissioned even if he didn't pass his exams, kind of thing. So and I felt the whole story needed to be explored properly and to see were OCBs and the system as it evolved any good and did that contribute in any way to the operational effectiveness of the BEF uh, by the end of the war. So which leads me into my second question is what were officer cadet battalions? Officer cadet battalions were created by an army council uh, instruction in February 1916. An officer cadet battalion was structured like an infantry battalion in that it would have a number of companies, typically four, though some at times had up to six. So four companies, 
typically four platoons, the platoon commander being an instructor. Their role was to train people initially for a little over four months or, or, or thereabouts. But in late 17, early 1918, the course got extended to six months. So effectively, they were some accounts describe them as mini Santaists, and they were to take people from the initial selection once people applied to be an officer they would train them in the skills the capabilities and the behaviors and test for character and then the final decision would be made to give that man a commission so the training is all pre-commissioning training and, and selection so why were they needed and how did they come about so that's one of the things i'm looking at is before the ocbs were instructed people were given commissions very much on the basis of having been to the right school it was based on you know getting a, um, a recommendation from the commanding officer your headmaster and they of course were drawing on the 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 public school boy, typically public school boys, grammar school boys, and many have been to o- o- the officer training corps at school university. So that was the ready pool of officers, potential officers that was there. So by the time you get into late 1915, early 1916, this pool of potential officers is starting to dry up is one thing. And I think the second point is that the, there are concerns about quality of officers, not, not necessarily in terms of character, but in terms of capability. So at loose. There are comments that Haig, for example, makes around the capability of some of the officers in some of the divisions. I think particularly the, the divisions that um, the New Army divisions, 21st and 24th, when they try to attack at loose. And the lack of capability of the officers to actually do their job of you know, some of the basics of the fire manoeuvre and, uh, and those kind of things. They didn't have the, the, the skills to, to operate in a way that I think we would see as being typical of 1918. So limited capability, not having had the training. So I think by end of 1915, there's a real concern about quality and quality control in terms of junior officers. And you'll find this phrase, inefficiency, the inefficient officer comes up quite a bit. So if a man had been commissioned, was found to be inefficient, which I, I think is an undefined phrase, but I think means incompetence, an incompetent officer, inefficient officer was quite hard to sack. You had to ask them to resign, and that process could take some weeks, as they might be they'd get shunted to somewhere safe where they couldn't kill anyone, and they'd have to formally resign and send a letter in, and that process of to and fro and arguments and so on could take quite a bit of time. So what you often find is inefficient officers get shunted into a safe job um, where they can't do any harm. So we clearly have have concerns about quality and quantity by, by the time the OCB system gets announced in February 1916. So how many were they and where were they located? <laughs> right. So how many were there? That's a really, I, I think, a good good question because there's, there's some figures that get banded around which are often, I think, wrong. So in terms of total numbers so with the the infantry there are in total 24 officer cadet battalions one of those is the household officer cadet battalion and then there are numbers 1 to 23 and 23 had originally been formed as a, as a machine gun corps officer cadet battalion so you you have those and then the other arms have have OCBs as well so number 24 OCB is formed specifically for the tank corps and that's formed out of the number 2 Machine Gun Corps OCB. And those are the ones that people tend to talk about, partly thanks to Brigadier James and his very helpful book on British regiments. But actually, the I think the counts of, of, of officer selection that have been published so far tend to not think about the other arms. And the statistics of the military effort of the British Empire, in fact, says there are a total of 54 officer cadet training units. So there are six 
for much well for 1918 in fact eight at a time in 1917 for the royal artillery there are two for the cavalry the royal engineers have three which eventually get amalgamated into, into one the royal engineer ocb at kelkham hall in newark the royal army service corps have two and then the the biggest one after the infantry is the royal flying corps and raf which has a total of 16 officer cadet training units which there's a whole level of complexity there which i'm, I'm not going to go into in in, in detail um, so a total of 54 units is stated in the statistics and military efforts, with a, at least two more known to have existed at one point. There's so a huge infrastructure that was set up, and they are all over the country. So you have, if I just go scroll down, so the first 11 are set up in February, March 1916. So... What they do is they use infrastructure that's readily available. So they're using either sort of country houses that can be moved into or they're using Oxford and Cambridge colleges or Bristol University. So you have numbers two and uh, and five are in Cambridge colleges. Numbers four and six are also in Oxford colleges. Number eight is the one that's in the barracks at Witchfield, uh, Wishington Barracks in Litchfield in Staffordshire. Number 11 is at Hutman's in, in Purbright. And then the one, the other big one that's set up at that stage are numbers 9 and 10 OCB, which is set up at Gales Nershire at Irvine, which is using an old training, hutted training camp that had been used by the volunteers and territorial force beforehand. And then the other two, numbers 1 and 7, one in South Devon at Newton Ferrers used a stately home, um, and as did number 7 used a home, a stately home in Moore Park, uh, Fermor in County Cork in Ireland, which is the only one in Ireland. So 1916 is very much a period of setting up the system and refining it. And then from the end of 1916 onwards, so from about September, October, more OCBs come on stream. So 12 and 13 is set up in Newmarket. Number 14 starts at the beginning of September 1916, is set up by the Inns of Court OGC. So they're supernumerary super companies of the Inns of Court, then become number 14 OCB. A similar thing with the Artist Rifles OGC, their supernumerary companies become number 15 uh, OCB. Then in North Wales, you've got two more at, uh, at Kimmel Park in R- Rill, 16 and 17. Number 18 is at Prior Park in Bath. 192021 are all in encampments around all the shots. Number 22 is is actually another one in, in uh, Cambridge. It's Jesus College, Cambridge, and that's set up for the garrison officer cadet battalion. So these are men who are often a bit older or a bit less fit who are set up to, for, for garrison units. So the garrison units that are garrisoning the east coast of England, also things like entrenching battalions and Labour Corps battalions, where it's not so important to be quite as fit um, as a frontline infantry unit. So that that's, gives some idea of where they actually were around the country so what sort of numbers did they teach how many how many officers actually went through the battalion as a percentage of the all the officers commissioned during the war this is uh, i think another area where i think the numbers quoted are often not correct so um a figure that's usually stated from brigadier james is that seventy-three thousand infantry officers were 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 commissioned and that actually is about the right number another figure that's given about 101,000 or, or thereabouts a bit over 100,000 covering all units and I think the, the bit that's tending to miss is the Royal Flying Corps and RAF so the total number given of cadets to officer training units between February 1916 and 1st of December 1918 is actually 145,000 
621 across all arms from all 54 or so units. So if I was entering an OCB, what would I be taught? You'd be taught a wide range of things. Now, there was certainly for when the course is four months long, as it was originally conceived, you would get given officially the programme as 540 hours of formal training. So that covers it, it, particularly in the first two months of individual training. So PT to make sure they're fit. Bayonet training starts the second month. So bayonet training builds fitness, but also is an important skill to teach because the bayonet fighting was about that last 20 or 30 yards when you've got up to your enemy position and the barrage lifts and you've got to rush the enemy trenches. And there's, there's a lot of myth, I think, talks about the bayonet in the First World War. Uh, the futility myth, I think, is tied up with it. But the bayonet training is a very important part because it is about that closing with the enemy and using the threat of the bayonet as a thing that helps negotiate the, the, the enemy to surrender. They either have to f- fight or flee. So being able to train your troops, your men, to be aggressive and use the bayonet at the right time as part of your trench clearing is quite important. And then drill, of course, is another one that the first half of the course Feature. So this is not about just about being competent to drill yourself as a as an individual, but actually it's training your platoon. You know, being able to give orders on the parade ground and march a body of men. And okay, often your platoon sergeant might do that. It might be you know form up three ranks, do an inspection, carry on platoon sergeant kind of thing. But you still need to be able to do it. And part of the reason that's important is about that's how, as a junior officer, you can very visibly be seen to be exercising command. So that's obviously one of the things that they're looking for when the evaluations are being made. It's a very easy way of evaluating people. Uh, Musketry training is important as well throughout the course, again, particularly the first two months. Um, As an officer, you want to be reasonably competent at at shooting, though when it comes to it in the crunch of battle, you yourself aren't going to be firing very often, if at all. But you do need to be able to instruct your men. So it's all that stuff around you know, training people in the theory and, and practice of, of aiming, how to breathe, how to, what point you squeeze the trigger in your breathing cycle. All that sort of stuff is very important. Now, how to aim off for wind and that kind of thing. That, the training in musketry is about how to teach people that stuff as much as how to do it yourself. And obviously, as an officer cadet, you get the chance to train people to, to exercise command, so doing running a range. So you need to be able to run a range safely, and properly and I, I got range qualified and when you're doing a range qualification course the other people on the party on the course with you you know they will be acting as riflemen and 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 and, and firing but you have to be able to run the practices whatever it is a falling plate competition firing at a target grouping to test you know to test the aim of a rifle um you need to be able to, to to run that and and use the right sequence of commands so people don't get hurt when they're in the bus so people need to be range qualified you also have stuff around field engineering trench warfare bombing anti-gas training map reading and reporting and that might cover things like sketching could be quite important military law so if one of your men comes back drunk um, you know what do you do uh, what, what are the procedures and then military administration interior economy so that's all the things that, that might apply about billeting messing um, rationing and that kind of thing um, and then towards the back end of the course the last two months are when you start to do the tactical exercises that is all pretty much the last two months. You have to build up the individual skill and knowledge first, and then you get to do the tactical exercises. So they're both tutes, so a tactical exercise without troops, where you're looking at the, the tactical situation on the ground and talking about it in syndicates of 
uh, uh, you know, bisectional by platoon, you're discussing it through as to what your courses of action might be. So that's a very good way of training people about tactics and how to think. So part of what you're doing there is about explaining to people how to do what's called a combat appreciation, I would call it. So, you know, if you're advancing across a bit of open ground, a German machine gun opens up from that copse on the right, what do you do? You know, how do you respond? Obviously, you're going to go to ground. Once your, you know, your, your initial sections have gone to ground, how do you, you deal with suppressing that position? And as a platoon commander, you've got to come up with that, the solution to that particular problem. So those tutes are very useful for doing that and helping you think it through. So, and then they would get into the practical exercises where the whole company cadets would go out into the field and you would, the cadets would take turns in exercising the command appointments. So somebody would be platoon commander for the day. Somebody would be platoon sergeant. Different cadets would be, would be section commanders. But those appointments over the course of an exercise would rotate. And so the, 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 the instructors could assess how effective people were in the different command roles. And particularly towards the end of the course, if there's somebody you weren't quite sure about, that you thought they needed to be under a bit of pressure and be pushed a bit, then you might select certain individuals for certain reasons. It's usually not completely random. So by the end of the course, of the four months, they would have had a pretty thorough assessment of what they're looking for in terms of ability to instruct troops and ability to command and lead. And was there any sort of social training to be an officer? There was, I think, a, a mixture of formal and informal. So there were mess nights were quite a regular thing. Um, and I think one of the areas where the ACBs were different, probably whether they were they were teaching things like that, that perhaps may have been learned by some of the public school boys at school or from their sort of family background. You know, the formal dinner, you know, which, which bits of cutlery to use and in what order and how to pass the pork and that kind of thing. If you were sort of lower middle class or even working class cadets, of which there were probably a handful, you know, you wouldn't get embarrassed when you ended up in the, in the officer's mess. And I think some of them, some of the accounts I've read, I think people did value that if they hadn't come across that kind of thing before. So there was this role of acculturing people into the sort of gentlemanliness and, and behaviours expected of an officer. And I think John Lewis Stemple, in his book on six weeks um, about officers in the Great War, I think he, he, he there, he uses the phrase, they were crash courses in how to be a public school boy. And I think he, uh, there's a lot of truth in that. Relating to that, what was the sort of background of your average cadet? What was their sort of social class and, and sort of experience before they entered an OCB? There's a there's a bit of a mix. I think one of the, the, the things that I've been looking at is what was the, the the output from the public schools and the schools that other schools had OTCs. A lot of the grammar schools had OTCs. So I've got a database of about 250 schools that I pulled together from various books that have been published, like the um, Stranton Selden and David Walsh's book on the public schools in the Great War. There's another book on public school war memorials and various others. And I've got about 250 schools in there, some of whom were you know, fully fee-paying public schools. Others were on that borderline, um, grammar schools and so on. Now, those schools had a, a role, I would have said, probably about 60,000 boys in total. And if we say that perhaps one in four of those left every year, that gives you about an output of about 12,000 men a year. So a very small number. So when you, well, by the time you get to 1918, the public school boys who joined up in the ranks of things like the class battalions, the London Regiment, or some of the PALS battalions, many of those traditional officer-type material that's in the ranks, they've either been killed or commissioned. So the new officer types that are coming out of school 12,000 or so a year, it's a pretty minimal number. So 12,000 12, is, is, is not not enough to staff an army given the losses and scale of replacement it needs. 
So the bulk of the officers coming in are coming in from the ranks. Now, a few of those may have been your public school boys who, who joined the ranks, getting commissioned, but many of them, in fact, the majority, were what I call lower middle class. They were typically clerks, administrators, people often doing white-collar jobs, but without the right background. They'd been to a, a board school, a, a local council school. They'd left at 14, 16. They'd been working as a clerk. You know, they'd often been in trade or industry or retail or something like that, but hadn't had the right education to have been an officer in, in 1914 terms. But these are men who have often well-educated reasonably intelligent, they're being recommended by their commanding officers to go and take a commission. And to, you know, to give one example, I've got the role of a platoon of number 12 OCB, a platoon of men that was training at the time of the armistice. There are 21 men in that platoon. Two of them are public school boys straight out of school. One of them had been head boy at Sedbur School, um, and he was called up in that late June, July of 1918 to go straight into 12 OCB. Two more were men who'd attended public schools but were, were being commissioned from the ranks, so the right to type of chap. All the others ha- had been serving in the ranks, with a couple of exceptions who, who were sort of clerks who'd left school, gone into the, in, the artist rifles, or into court, um, OGCs. So the vast bulk of them had, had served in the ranks, and often, you know, it was two, three years' experience, a pretty experienced chaps by this point. And I, I think that's probably more reflective of what the officer corps or the OCBs were turning out by the armistice. And so who were the staff in the OCBs? The staff were a bit of a mixture. You know, the, the Predominantly, and I, I've just said probably about two-thirds, based on the statistics I've got, are men, officers who've been out to the front, and they've got wounded, and then they're fit for light duties back in England. And they're using this opportunity at the OCB to bring their experience to bear and also to recuperate. And some of them never get fit enough to go back. They are they're, they're disabled in some shape or form, you know, whatever it is. So, and I've just said about two-thirds of them in that category. Some of them um, quite highly decorated. I found one who was a Victoria Cross winner who was on the staff of number five OCB in Cambridge. So quite a few are decorated. Obviously, having somebody who embodies physical courage because they have been decorated is a useful thing to have as a role model. That is probably the majority of instructors. So they're the platoon officers and company officers, the company commanders, the chief instructor and the platoon commanders in the OCBs. Now, there were some that weren't. And a number of the OCBs arose out of the schools of instruction that had preceded the officer cadet battalion system. So the schools of instruction were mainly set up by the University Officer Training Corps, the senior division OTC. And their instructors were sometimes too old or not fit enough to go out into the Western Front, but they were instructing in the Officer Cadet Battalion that had arisen out of their, their AGC. So at Cambridge, for example, in nine, late 1916, one third of the instructors in number two OCB at Pembroke, Cambridge, were actually officers of Cambridge University Officer Training Corps. And there, were one, there was one who was an officer who'd commanded the Lees School OGC in Cambridge. Similarly, I found a, a professor at Bristol University OGC, who's an instructor there, who'd ended up instructing number three OCB. Um, similarly, Oxford had a number of instructors there. Interestingly, Oxford instructors include CRMF Crutwell, whose history of the Great War many of listeners in this may be familiar with, later principal of Hartford College, Oxford. It also includes AF Major AF Beck, who drew many of the maps and whose um, Beck's order to battle, of course, many people will be familiar with. So, and, and Beck was connected with one, one of the Oxford Colleges as well. And a couple of fellows, Captain Matheson of, of Keeble College, 
was another one who'd instructed in, in, in the OCB there. So there was a role very much for these university OCC officers in, in, in running them. And some of them instructed those OCBs throughout the rest of the war, albeit in some cases getting sent over to the, to the Western Front for a period. I should say something about the commanding officers. So the commanding officers of the OCCs were, in some cases, as in Oxford and Cambridge, uh, numbers two and four OCB were the commanding officers of the officer training corps. But more typically, they were lieutenant colonels or majors who'd had usually good pre-war experience. Most of them I found had served in South Africa. And many of the ones I've seen seem to have served on the Western Front and had, had got wounded uh, subsequently. It, it is very clear from some of the ones I've found that I think skill in training, a skill as an instructor was highly valued. And I suppose... We come to the the big question, um, touched on by your quote uh, of Robert Graves above, about well, what was the impact of these OCBs? What difference did they make? I think the impact is one of those hard things to quantify. Um, and the, I think it's generally acknowledged that the the BEF went through a learning process that encompassed several different overlapping learning curves and lots of factors contributed to its effectiveness in 1918 and I think one of the factors that is there is that junior officers get more effective as the war goes on. It's obviously hard to quantify exactly how much they contribute to the effectiveness because the the, the causality is so complex but I think things that do stand out is that, that you know there was a bar to get through an ACB course. They failed about one in ten officers, by my reckoning. I think Robert Graves equates out. I've seen stats from some that suggest about ninety percent. People who weren't up to the job were getting weeded out. The number of inefficient officers who get through, I think, is relatively few. I've only found one who got who was asked so far asked to resign, having been through an ACB course. So I think the level of competence goes up. And of course, many of this, much of this, is because these are battle hardened men in most cases you've already experienced life in the trenches they know what the reality is like they come through the system and give them those extra skills if they didn't have them already that allows them to command and lead and lead men in battle so they that formal knowledge they may have missed out in their recruit training when they join up they have being given a lot of that formally and being taught how to instruct so i think the, the bar goes up and there are examples i found a, a man a man an officer cadet richard lair who went to Clifton College. Lair joins the University's Public Schools Brigade in, in 1914, and then he decides he wants to get a commission. Now, he plays his cards wrongly. Clifton College, of course, Dougie Hayes, alma mater. Richard Lair you know, almost certainly would have got a commission with a Kitchener Battalion if he wanted. Overplays his hand, and he decides he wants to go to Santos, or his mother decides that. So he goes to Santos in November 1914. Now, Come the 10th of May 1915, the officer commanding Sandhurst um, writes to his mother, it's impossible for me to recommend him as likely to become an efficient officer. Of course, Sandhurst has a, um, you know, has a, ha- has a high bar. He's got to pass the course before you get commissioned, unlike the, you know, some of the, the, the Kitchener commissions that are awarded in 1914. So Lair gets RTU'd back to the UPS brigade. May 1916, so a year later, um, he attends number six OCB in Oxford. And after a couple of months there, he gets more feedback and it's not not good. And it it says he is a gentlemanly cadet and I think does his best. But he has apparently no capacity for learning and shows no initiative. He is not and I think never will be fitted to command a platoon. There's lots more to and fro. And then a month later, CO of six OCB writes again. It's even more clear to me now that this cadet will never make a leader of men. So this is a, a great case of a man getting weeded out who in 1914 probably would have got through and got a new army commission because he'd been to the right school. So the OCBs are weeding out some of these people who aren't up to the job. That 10% I, I alluded to, you know, this is a classic example of a man 
who didn't get through and right, quite rightly so. I don't know what happens to him. I think he does survive the war. I think that's one angle. I think the other angle that's important is, is to talk about quantity. The ACBs, the infantry ACBs alone, by the time you get to mid-1917, are producing two and a half to 3,000 new graduates a month. So it's a quite a you know, production line system almost. So people are being pushed through. And what we're building up is enough quantity, enough slack in the system that the BF can stand big losses. So the classic example of this, I think, is after the March retreat, where you find units like the 90 Surreys, you know, the 90 Londons that I've looked at, where they're getting big drafts of men and big drafts in that of new officers, new second lieutenants. You know, you, you could be getting sometimes after that, that March retreat, maybe 15, 20 new second lieutenants in one hit. That's a huge number to integrate into a unit. Um, the reason that's done is because in 1917, we've built up this pool of officers, many of whom typically from the ACB, they, they generally go into one of the training reserve battalions or the, the territorial force reserve for a few months just to hone their skills and to get exercise in or to, to exercise with these recruits. So conscripts going to some of those TRB units you know, often probably not that willing. So it's very different from being in, in, in cadet school where everyone's trying to play the game to get through. Whereas if you've got, you're going to a training reserve battalion, you've got 18-year-old conscripts that you need to bash into some kind of shape, that's a good chance to hone your, your skills and exercise command. So this, the, the reserve system, I think, creates this pool of officers that has been produced in 1917. So when it gets to the March retreat, there's something we can draw on very quickly to fill up the the units on the Western Front who've, who've lost a lot of men in casualties or, or, or missing. But because the bar is set, I think, reasonably high, it does mean that as the, we get ready for the 100 days, that the, the quality doesn't dip, which means that the British Army in 100 days is, is, is well-staffed, unlike the German Army, where the, the, the officer-to-other to ranks ratio uh, weakens, whereas, in fact, in the British Army in, in late 1918, we have as many, if not more, officers than we had early on in the war, uh, typically around sort of 43, 44 Per battalion, which the German army, there's a weakening of that simply because the German army is restricting its officer intake from the very narrow social class that that it, that it had had done throughout the war, and there weren't enough of those. So you find German officers, new officers in in the German army late on in the war. Some of them are only 17, 17 and a half, very very young um, young guys. So how does the British OCB program in the First World War compare to similar programs in other conflicts? Um, obviously by other countries? That's a good question. It's one of the things I, I'm, I'm starting to get into as a comparator. So I think there is parity with the, the American army. The, the AEF is, is probably closest in many respects because of that expansion it has in 1917 and 1918, a very small regular army base. And the American army goes through a similar kind of, of thing. And I think it's probably more formal than we were initially. I, I think they go through a more formal process earlier on than we do of selecting men of the right kind of type and putting them through a, a programme with a, with a bit of rigour. So I think, I suspect they may well have learnt from our experience but I don't know if that's the case at the moment. I'd also suggest there's a comparison with the British Army in the Second World War. So the British Army in the Second World War doesn't suffer the losses it does in the first by any means, you know, half or, or but if not less than that. So there isn't quite the pressure on the officer producing classes. So what the British Army does do in the Second World War is that the, the idea of the Kitchener battalions obviously doesn't happen. If you're already marked as a potential officer because you went to the right school, when war breaks out, you're going straight to, very often straight in, you, you do a basic training as a private, but then you go to officer cadet training in an OCTU, which is what my father did when he left school in 1943. He went to an OCTU in Oxford. You weren't allowed to go into the ranks and stay there. There as, a, as a 
gentleman ranker type thing. So we're much better in the Second World War husbanding our manpower. Downside of that, though, in the Second World War is the British Army is not drawing from the wide social classes that it does. I think the, the snobbery and elitism that is associated with the public schools stays. So what you find in the Second World War is that restriction to that narrow social class stays throughout the war, whereas it doesn't in the First World War. It, there's a much broader base of recruitment. I, I haven't really talked about the Australians and Canadians, actually. So... One point I would I would say is that the Australian and New Zealand cadets they all go through the officer cadet battalions in Oxford and Cambridge in the First World War. So you consider them as, as part of the British Army. The one dominion that goes alone is Canada, which has sets up the Canadian Training School at Bexhill. It's set up on the on very much an OCB lines with the same syllabus. So to all intents and purposes, it's an officer cadet battalion. But the Canadians I think learn from that. And there's a there's a book I'm about to read about the Canadian officer training and selection in the Second World War which does suggest that they learned from it. And one of the, the people who led that was a Milton Gregg VC. He'd actually been through number five OCB in Cambridge as a cadet in, in 1916. And um, the penultimate question is, what do you think we can learn from the OCB programme today? Um, I think there are lessons on it that, that resonate e- even today. I, I think one of them is about the necessity of you know, if you want to recruit talent in its broadest sense, you shouldn't restrict yourself. And anybody like I do who deals with HR and, and sort of people management, you know, we talk about diversity and inclusion. And actually, it was a very the the British officer corps in terms of what was you know, new officers by 1918, I think, was extraordinarily diverse in terms of who was being commissioned. You know, a much broader social class than it certainly was in the second. You know, it, it was confidence in the battlefield was. You know, the key thing really that if you could show if you're showing that you were effective as a junior NCO your commanding officer could recommend you for a commission you didn't have to take it if you really didn't want to but I think I'm sure pressure was applied so you know we're looking outside of the box to find people who could be effective platoon commanders and we did that very well and of course we find that you know people of colour um, Walter Toll being the, the best known but he was by no means the only one and wasn't the first and then I found a, a lump, quite a lot of Maori officers from the New Zealand uh, Dominion contingent who went through various OCBs. So we're looking outside the box very broadly to find people who can do the job. You've got to cast your, your net widely. And I think that applies to all organisations today. You need to do that. You want, you want to cast your net widely and not restrict yourself to, to that, that's what I call the unconscious bias of looking at only a certain type of people because they have what you predefine as having the right skills, in this case, being a gentleman. And finally, Charles, where can people learn more? And I appreciate that might, might be some years before we can actually look at this in black and white. Yes, it will be a, a little bit. I think a publication of PhD is a good four years away. Yeah, there are primary sources I'm looking at. The OCBs themselves don't have war diaries. They weren't obliged to. I found one set of part one and part two orders in an Oxford archive. Yeah, I, so this is very much coming from primary sources. But there are various memoirs of men who went through different OCBs. And I've got quite a collection of those now. And I'm still building them and looking out for them. If anybody does know of one's or has stuff they could share, stories I'd be very keen to know. But that's probably your best source, actually, is to read some of those. It may only be a few paragraphs or a few pages, but there are some quite good accounts of what life was like in, in Office Cadet Training Unit. The only other source that is worth a look is the, the OCB course is often produced as sort of commemorative journal, commemorative 
commemorative magazine, a bit like a yearbook, as a souvenir. And quite a lot of those exist in the Imperial War Museum British Library, and they've been digitised by a firm called ProQuest. And there's about 30, 35 or something like that, different ones that have been digitised that you can look at online. And those give quite a lot of insight into what life was like. You know, it tells you about the sporting programmes, the concert troops, all the sort of stuff they did. Not so much about the course itself. That hasn't really been written up, but they're often a little bit satirical, a bit of reportage, a bit of a bit of history, a bit of whatever it is that they wanted to put in. That's really the only source that I can think of that is at the moment in the public domain, is is readily available if you want to go and dig that out. So it's still a lot of it's, I think, what I call a, a, a fairly unknown history of the First World War. Charles, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.